Take the scriptures, please, your Bibles, and we shall look at Revelation chapter 20, where we will be for the next two or three sessions, actually. And I need to spend some time here because we will never get the full teaching from the picture that's presented to us of Satan. You remember last time we spoke, we did look at Satan and his origins. We looked at his dreadful work in the Garden of Eden. And we looked at the names that he had telling us something about the kind of creature that he is. And what we're doing is looking at an overall picture of God's dealings with Satan. And this is so that we can get a better understanding and grasp of the fullness of the truth contained in this section of chapter 20. So I'll just read it to you so that you've got the picture clear in your mind. Chapter 20 and verse 1, I saw an angel come down from heaven having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand and he laid hold on the dragon that old serpent which is the devil and Satan bound him a thousand years (coughs) cast him into the bottomless pit shut him up set a seal on him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled and after that he must be loosed for a little season. So there it is. Get the picture in your mind of this angel. Just an angel coming down from heaven. The heavens are ruling. The heavens in control. The messenger is coming from heaven. And in his hand he's got the key. And then the other one he's got, as it were, the great chain. And he goes to Satan and he puts his hand on him, as it were, and says, come with me. Puts his hand on the dragon. There's no fight It's all under complete control. Satan just has to go. The dragon, the old serpent, the devil and Satan, and he's bound. He's restrained. He is controlled. He is contained. And then he's cast into the bottomless pit and shut up. And there's a seal on him. He's identified for who he is and what he is. He's exposed the evil that he does and the evil that he actually is. And he's really in a situation where he doesn't have free range at all. Very much restricted and weakened and under control. That's the, the picture that we've got here in Revelation chapter 20. And I pondered just how I could bring out the fullness of the teaching of this picture because the picture is huge. And we found with all the pictures that so often there were principles there that applied almost right throughout the history of the things of God and then particularly also had an application in the years and the times that lie ahead. We've got exactly the same thing here. See, we, we do have a bit of a tendency in reading chapter 20 to think that the, the chapter basically is all about things that are going to only happen in the future now, if, if, if all we're looking at in the picture is a lesson about something that applies to the future, then you've got to sort of say to yourself, well, this must mean that Satan is currently, he's not bound at all. You see, he's not restricted, he's not weakened, and he's not being exposed for what he is. In other words, he's unrestricted, he can do exactly what he wants, and Satan today has free reign. Now, clearly that's not so. I mean, we'd all be, I was going to say annihilated, 
But I mean, if Satan, if Satan was let loose on us entirely without the restraining hand of God, where would any of us be? All right? So first of all, let's get the big, big, big picture of the whole thing. Because understand this, that, that actually Satan does nothing and never has done anything outside of the will of God. That's quite a sweeping statement. But understand when we we talk about the will of God in Scripture, it it has two sections to it. There is the decretive will of God. That is, God makes decrees. He legislates certain laws and standards and he sets things and declares exactly what's going to happen. The decretive will of God. And then there is the permissive will of God. God permits certain things to happen certain times. The whole point being that God himself is always in control, right? Satan only ever goes as far as God allows him to go. Of course, the classic example of that is with Job, where he wants to get his hands on Job. He can't even start to get his hands on Job until he gets permission to get his hands on Job. And then he wants to hurt Job, and God says, yes, you can bring disease on him, but you can't put your hand on him and kill him. You see, there is God ever in control, and Satan is always to some degree restricted, and he's always held within the confines of the will of God. Because we have a God who works all things after the counsel of his own will. That doesn't change at any time in any dispensation, if you like, in the Old Testament or in the New. It's true. The incredible thing is that God actually uses bad things. Even Satan's evil actions to further his own purposes rather than to have them hindered. Now we actually saw a sweep of that in sheer magnificence some weeks back when we we saw how there was the fall, wasn't there? I mean, you might say that was the end of all of God's intentions and the ruination of all his plans and the bringing of misery to mankind forever and forever. And you wondered why God just didn't put his hand in for a minute and say, excuse me, excuse me, serpent, hold your peace, get out of here. Eve, break up that conversation, it's all over, we're not going to allow this to happen. But he didn't do that, you see. And out of that incredible act of sin that incredible act of evil, out of what Satan did at his worst when he brought man down, himself also fallen, God ultimately brought glory and blessing. Do you see that? He used even that for glory, his own glory, to ultimately be able to reveal himself in all his fullness and splendor. So that mankind would not just merely know him as creator, as provider, as sustainer, as the one who would keep company with them in the heat, in the cool, I should say in the cool of the day, but as one who would love them to such an extent that he would provide a sacrifice for sin and his own dear son to die at Calvary. For it needed the cross to bring out the fullness of the love of God. And out of that act of terrible evil, God brought his own glory and he actually bought a greater blessing for the whole of mankind. Yes, you had Eden and paradise, but now we've got something far more wonderful in heaven and all its glory. 
So you see how God worked in that instance and how he will bring good out of evil. And let me just say in passing, you go through patches in your own life on a personal level, don't we? When there seems that everything goes wrong and you, you get that sense of there's an attack against you and you, you think, well, this is from the devil. Oh dear, save me from the devil. This is going to be a disaster. It doesn't work like that. Satan sorts to, seeks to do you harm, but what happens? He drives you to the arms of Christ, doesn't he? He drives you to your knees in prayer and independence, independence upon God, doesn't he? He sanctifies you and he changes you. And instead of you being destroyed in your faith, you actually your faith is refined. It's made more, it's purified. It's made stronger. Instead of that sense of the presence of God going from you, the nearness of the Lord becomes more real to you. And what Satan intended for evil, God turned it for good. That's the whole process of sanctification. And whom he loves, he chastens, he scourges every son that he receives. So it goes on. So get this, let us get this clear in our minds and repeat them again. One, God is in control. He is always in control. Two, he uses even bad things and even the activities of Satan himself to further his own purposes, to glorify his own name and to bless his creature. Now, that stands. Scripture's proved it. And the fall is a proof of it, and the outcome of that fall demonstrates it very plainly. Satan is not, and never has been, in control. And he never will be in control. He has a domination over the children of disobedience in his own kingdom of darkness, but we'll bring this out as we go through. He goes only as far as the will of God allows it. Because after all, he was made as an angel who was a servant, right? And in a strange and mysterious way, he still is a servant, albeit a rebellious one. And God will use even him for his own personal glory and to bring out the fullness of who he is and the blessing that he would have and the promises that he would make for mankind who trust in him. <clears throat> you see, let me say it again. Emphasise it. I want you to get Satan in his right place now. Right? as it always has been, and we'll see it develops right to the present day and then in a fuller way in a day to come. As a creature, he is still under the creator because he more be it, he's in direct rebellion and he's in opposition, but he's inferior. I mean, he's not, Satan's not omnipresent. You realise that? Satan's not able to be everywhere. He's not a divine person. Come on. He's an angel fallen he is not omnipresent. Sure, he has plenty of helpers of his helpers to report on what's going around uh, in the world and to keep him informed as best they can, and they can't do that entirely. He is not omnipresent. He's not everywhere. Number one. He's not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. Don't think that. He can't read your thoughts. Do you understand that? God knows your thoughts. Satan does not read your thoughts. He's not divine. Right? He's powerful, don't get me wrong. He's an angel with angelic power and evil power, and he's far greater than us as humankind. But he is not omniscient. He does not read your thoughts. He's doubtless, he sits and watches you, and he reads your character, and he gets to know your habits like he did with Job, remember? When the Lord said to Job, Where have you been, Job? 
And Job says, oh, I've been walking up and down in all the earth. The old liar, he hadn't been walking up and down in all the earth at all. He'd been camping in Job's backyard, studying him very closely, working out the kind of man he was and how he could bring him down. <coughs> but he's not omniscient, please, and nor is he omnipotent. He doesn't have absolute power. Thank God for that. That power resides in God's hand. And the reason we are safe and secure from all alarm is because we too are in the hand of God. And there is one in us, God himself within the believer. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world, and that's Satan. It's not that we ourselves are made powerful and we have power within, of ourselves, but we have one within us greater than the one who is in the world. Right, now what I want to bring out, I'm labouring it, I'm going to labour it because you'll never understand properly the, the meaning of Revelation 20, and nor will you have peace in your own mind about Satan's activities in the world in the present day if you don't get these truths, that God himself is in control. He has a program of his de- for his dealings with Satan. There is a program set, all right? It runs exactly parallel with his program of redemption. God has every intention to reveal himself and to bless sinful fallen man And Satan has every intention to destroy that. He doesn't want God revealed, and he certainly doesn't want blessing. But all the way along, from the very fall in Genesis 3, right to his final destruction in Revelation 20, God is in control, God is controlling, he is restricting, he is limiting, he is gradually closing in on Satan, he is weakening him. He is actually steadily breaking his power and he's undoing his works and he will finally bring the devil himself and every evil fallen angel and every cohort that Satan has, he will bring them to a total and final and complete end. Now that's in Revelation 20 really where the end of it all happens and they're cast into the lake which burns with fire and unquenchable. What we're going to do and how we're going to come to a better understanding of it all, God's program for Satan, Satan's capacity and incapacity, right? We're going to look at certain time periods through Scripture because this is a theme that's the same throughout the whole of Scripture. It's just that it intensifies as you go. And we will break it up into time slots, if you like. We saw the activities of Satan at the fall. Then we will look from the fall to the coming of the Lord Jesus of Christ into the world. Then in later sessions we will look at the dealings of Satan, God's dealings with Satan, Satan's opposition to God in that period of time from the moment the Lord Jesus was born right through his life. That's an enormous, that's a beautiful study. It's a beautiful study. You get Satan's activity and you get God's overruling hand. You get God's restraining hand. You get God using what Satan does in order to glorify himself in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then there's that period of time from his death, resurrection, and his ascension. And you will see the weakness of Satan, power being broken by the coming into the world of the Son of Man and the Son of God and the death of Christ and the power of the resurrection and the glory of the ascension. And then you'll stand in our present day and you'll see Satan in his true light 
with that deadly blow. And you'll see all that God intends to do in the working out of his own glory, in the bringing in of the blessings of redemption, and in the final destruction of the enemy of souls and of the enemy of God. So go back now to the first period of time. And then look at it. Genesis chapter 3. That's where you get the program set. That's God's program for Satan. It's written here, very plainly. Genesis chapter 3, and what does it say? What's happened is we've had the fall, right? Verse 14. And the Lord God said to the serpent, the serpent was the creature that Satan used to, to bring in his purposes, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. And upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. Now I tell you what, it's perfectly true every time you see a snake. The only creature that really basically wriggles on the earth, and you realise it hasn't got its legs to lift itself up. Every time you see the slither of a snake, you are being told very plainly that Satan is already under the judgment of God. You see that? It's one of the signs, like the rainbow in the heaven. The promises of God, he is a sign of the judgment of God. That's the first thing. And this is what it says here. This is the point I want to get. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed, It or he shall bruise thy head, thou shalt bruise his heel. Now get the picture. I will put enmity. There's going to be hostility. That very woman that you used as your accomplice, who so willingly had a pleasant chat with you, that's over. Sorry, Satan, he says. What's going to come here is hostility from that very woman and absolutely no cooperation. That's the first thing. Secondly, I'm going to put enmity or hostility. There's going to be, there's going to be a conflict between you and her seed. I will see to it that from this very woman there will spring, as it were, a whole race of people who will resist you, who will hate sin who will oppose your activities and all of your work. This is the idea of the seed in the plural form. That Satan, you've had free range on earth, it would seem, up until now. You've wandered in and out of my paradise, didn't you? And you can find cooperation and harmony everywhere. But now suddenly you're going to be faced with limitations. You're going to be faced with opposition. You're going to find there's enmity. And as you read through the scriptures and you see the plurality of seed, you see this this generation of people and this group of people growing up over the periods of the centuries, all of them with their faces set against the activities of Satan. And Satan finds his enmity to his program. And God uses these people. Think of it. You go into the household of Adam and Eve, and what do you find? You find a Cain, an evil man. But there's an Abel. You see that? That's part of the seed of the woman, the plurality of it. And that Abel was a righteous man. And then you read about it, Enoch. And Enoch was a man who had sons and daughters, and he... He had to bring them up in a dreadfully evil and a dreadfully difficult day. If you read about it, uh, it's quite terrible. But this man walked with God. 
And then there's a Noah, a Noah who had concern for his family. He was moved with fear and he prepared an ark for the saving of his house. And he was virtually the lone voice in the world in his day. But there he is, you see, he's all part of this plurality of the seed of the woman. He hated sin, he hated Satan, he lived a righteous life. And we could go on, there's Abraham and there's Isaac and there's Jacob and there's the prophets and there's the great men of faith. And you go to Hebrews chapter 11 and what does he say? If we're going to write about them all, well, time would fail us. You see that? But there's something more too. Number one, there's enmity between the woman. The cooperation was over. Number two, Satan, I'm sorry, but you know, there's, there's going to be opposition. There is. There's going to be victory over you and your, your deeds. But in the final saying of things, there will come one, and he's going to crush your head. Coming into the world of the Lord Jesus Christ. You might bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. Satan, I want you to know there's a time limit on your activities. That's what God is saying as he reveals his intention in Genesis chapter 3 of what lies ahead in the future for Satan and his rule and his reign and his influence and his evil. Satan, he says, I've actually made an appointment for you. Oh, I've set the time and the place. And at that time and place, I'm going to bring you to meet another Adam. I'm going to bring you to meet the second man, the Lord out of heaven. And not only have I set the time and the meeting, and who it is you're going to meet, I've actually set the very place where you're going to meet him, and you're going to come about, and your defeat will be brought about. You'll get your head crushed when you meet him. When you come to the place called Calvary, where they will crucify him. And through that death that he will die upon that cross, he is going to crush your head. Because what he'll do is that through death, He will destroy him that had the power of death. And that's you, devil. And he will deliver those who through fear of death are all their lifetime subject to bondage. Can you see the decree and plan of God? He has decreed it. He has willed it. He is in total control. There will be constant opposition, Satan, to to your activities upon this fallen world. There will be constant opposition. There will be the people of God. There will be the seed with the enmity. But there will be the ultimate coming of the Lord Jesus. There's a time limit set on you and your activities and upon you and your power. And then will come the final destruction. You've got the program. Where's the next period? That's just at the fall that that was said. Where's the next period of time? Well, really... <coughs> You've got then the situation in chapter 6. Go to chapter 6 of Genesis. And over a period of about 1,600 years, you have a world that's in a foment and a ferment of evil and sin. It's, it's actually quite horrific because we're going now to the time of the flood. And right through that period of time, from the fall to the flood, Satan does his evil work. And by the time you get to chapter 6, just before the flood, I mean, things are indescribably wicked. Look at verse 3. The Lord says, My spirit shall not always strive with man. He's also flesh. His days shall be 120 years. In other words, he's saying, I'm putting a time limit upon the length of period, the period in which he can sin so evilly and do such dreadful things, in which he can serve Satan. 
in which Satan can exert his power over one human being, I'm cutting back the life expectancy. There were giants on the earth in those days, and the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men and bare children to them, and the same became mighty men of which were of old men of renown. And I, I'm not going to go into all the arguments about what all that means. It just certainly means there's been such a perversion of morality where the sons of God and the daughters of men are cohabiting in some weird and evil and vile and hateful and corrupting way that there's abnormality in the growth of men on the earth and clearly Satan's at work here. What's he trying to do? He's trying to corrupt the human race so the promised seed will never come. That's what he's doing. Oh, God says, I'm going to bring in a redeemer that's going to crush your head. Satan says, no, you won't. I'll ruin the whole human race. I'll get all my cohorts from the other world and I'll bring them in to corrupt the whole kit and caboodle. Right. Verse 5, look at the, the, the description there. And God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. You know, that's like every thought he ever had was evil. And it wasn't just every thought he ever had, but it was every thought all the time that he ever had was evil. I mean, you can see what happens when Satan gets a control over the mind of fallen man. Look at the world in which we're living. I mean, what are they going to invent next that's evil? What's coming next? It's outrageous, the perversion that's turning on. Even something, we'll call it in the grand scale, I think, as small as all these transgender athletes and so on and so on, who's going to say anything more evil and stupid and ridiculous and vile and foul and filthy? I mean, it's just... Re- it's beyond the biggest description. Evil continually. Evil begets evil, which begets evil exponentially till everything is evil. And that's exactly what Satan's all about. Totally to corrupt. Verse 11. The earth was corrupt before God. The earth was filled with violence. That's where we're going. That's where we're getting. We're coming to a world that's serving Satan and Satan is bringing in everything he can. We're we're seeing it in a horrifying way in the Western world and our society in which we live. And it says in verse 10 that God was was grieved. Verse 6, it grieved him in his heart. He said, I will destroy man. And it repenteth me. I'm very sorry that I have got a man, a creation of man that has sunk to this level and is in such a sordid state. Satan has produced a world, a fallen world, with fallen man. He himself, a fallen creature, a fallen angel. And he's produced a society and a world so like himself that God says there's got to be judgment. And I'm not waiting for it. He says there's got to be now. Now, you you just think about this. We've gone 1,600 years... We started off with paradise and perfection. That's where we started. Beautiful. Man and God in harmony. Now we've got a world that's full of evil continually. This is exactly what Satan wants. Exactly what Satan wants. So you say, well, obviously, you know, Satan's gained control. God's lost control. God's plan of uh, redemption has been really thwarted, hasn't it? I mean, it's all over. There's judgment, terrible judgment. Satan has won. But, verse 8, Noah found grace 
in the eyes of the Lord. Do you see that? Who's in control here? Eh? Noah was a just man, perfect in his generation. Noah walked with God. Yes, Satan was at work, but God too had been at work, you see. And God was in control of the whole situation. And here was one who was part of that plurality of the seed of the woman, right? Part of that. And all that God ever needed was just one man and his family to continue his intentions, to work out the counsel of his own will, to contain the evil of Satan, to stop the program of Satan, and to continue with his intention to bring blessing to all mankind through the revelation of himself as a God of love who would provide a saviour for sinners. And God had all he needed just in that one man to bring in the promised seed ultimately and the Messiah. Satan's not in control. Please never think he is. And if you're feeling overwhelmed in your personal circumstances, now look up and see who's on the throne. It's not the devil. He never has been and he never will be. God is still on the throne. And he will remember his own. Keep it in mind. Get the focus correct. So we go from the flood now, and we'll go to chapter 11. Because from the flood, you've got the next big event, is some 300 years later, and it's the great Tower of Babel. We've been through that before. And in Babel, what happened? Mankind says, we're going to join ourselves together. We're going to make ourselves strong. We're going to exalt ourselves. We're going to make ourselves a name. We're going to build a tower to the heavens. We'll have our own system of worship. And it's all about ourselves. And it's to the exclusion of God. And it's an act of rebellion against God. And it'll be a world full of us and all about me. Well, what's new? 2022, what's new? A world all about us, say... And, oh, in the rejection of God, yes, and all about the me, the me, the me. Nothing's changed. You see, these pictures in Revelation, in a way, they're timeless. The principles which are portrayed. I mean, Satan doesn't change his tricks, his habits, or his ways, any more than God changes his purposes, or his intentions, or his own nature. And that's the whole point of the lessons we're trying to bring out here, and not just limit it to one little event. This is far bigger than one little event. So that's what you have. The Tower of Babel, what happens? God just says, oh, I'll confuse their languages. And they all came to work one day and they all got started and nobody knew who was saying what. And they all went home in despair and they all wandered off to different parts of the earth. Satan's plan was gone like that. Just in that one stroke of God. Now after that, you might say, well, where are we going to go from here? Well, 320 years later, can you believe this? Out of Babylon, just right in Babylon, God calls a man called Abraham. Just on the south tip of Babylon there, right where the devil did his worst and wanted to build that tower, God called a man and his name was Abraham. And this man, Abraham, was to be the father of a nation. He was to be the one in whose seed all nations of the earth will be blessed. He was the one that God would use just through him and his family and his seed to bring in the Lord Jesus Christ. The wonderful thing is he did it in such a powerful and supernatural way. I mean, by the time he got hold of Abraham, and by the time he dealt with Abraham, and with his wife Sarah, and by the time they went through all the different things that actually happened, there, there she is, 90 years of age, and he's the best part of 100 years of age, and they still are just got to getting their son. 
I mean, it's not possible. It's biologically ridiculous. But God is still on the throne, you see. Oh, God is in control. And Satan may have stood on the sideline laughing when he heard the promise of God made to Sarah through the angels that her son would be born at the time of year when they would return. I mean, even Sarah had a little laugh about it. But there's no laughing matter. When God speaks, there's no laughing matter. Satan is contained. Satan is controlled. Satan is limited by the will of God and by the activities and the decrees of God. And so Abraham brings forth that son and the nation is founded. And I mean, fancy imagining that at 90 years of age, ladies, you're going to have a child and from that child's going to come so many children that there'll be more than the stars of the heaven for their number or the screens of sand upon the seashore. Absolutely ridiculous. It's the hand of God, you see. Keep it in, contra- keep it in perspective. Satan, maybe you think he's there, but God, if you think Satan's there, God is way up there. You and I are in the hands of a mighty God and we've been delivered from the powers of darkness. Praise God for that, a wonderful fact. Wonderful fact. And you know, after Abraham, it's only three generations or so later that that very nation which had grown big, hundreds of thousands, right? They are down there in Egypt under the power of the greatest monarchy on earth, the satanic monarchy. They are slaves in Egypt. And worse than that, Pharaoh, who's in control of them, says, what does he say? Hey, they're getting too many. We've got, to, uh, got a bit of population control here, a bit of extermination here. Every time a male child's born, what you do, midwife, is that you kill that male child. And you look there, it goes on for 400, actually 430 years. And it would seem that, well, Satan again, you see, he's, he's at it again. He changes nothing. He knows Abraham. He's heard the promise of God to Abraham. He knows the nation that will come out of Abraham's loins. He knows that that will be the nation of Israel who will be the means of the bringing in of the Messiah. So he says, I'll destroy that nation. I'll put them in bondage. I'll see to them it, that they get wiped out. And then there's an incredible story. God just, well, the story of Moses. Again, it was, a, it was just a Noah, wasn't it? It was just a, it was just a one man, and then it was an Abraham. And, and now it's a Moses, a most, I was going to say, almost a ridiculous story. All the babies of males are going to die. That's what the decree of the greatest earthly monarch was. Yes, destroy them. Fine, and this mother, she has this little boy, and she sees him beautiful. Of course she does. <laughs> she sees him beautiful. I like to think, you know, she saw him also beautiful for God. You mothers need to look, please, look at your children every morning and see their potential. Beautiful for God. That's true motherhood. She took that baby and she did the stupidest, dumbest thing, you might say, that only a silly mother would do. Stick him in a basket, <clears throat> stick him in the reeds in the river, and then say, rightio, he'll be safe. I mean, come on. Have you ever heard a baby cry? Even the reeds you can't stick in the mouth of a baby to stop it crying. How often are you got to go and feed it every day? And that means you've always got to change the nappy if you get what I mean. So she's going to get sprung, isn't she? It's obvious. It's a pretty feeble sort of... Ah, but wait a minute. God is still on the throne. And you think about what happened to that babe that was one of God's children from God's people from that race of Israel who were destined for death, right? He ends up in the very palace of the king that passed the decree to see him destroyed. In other words, he went right into the territory of Satan. 
Pharaoh was Satan's emissary at the time against the people of God. And this, this child of, of God's people ends up right in the palace. And it's, it's a ridiculously stupid story because he's got a foot in both camps. He's got access in both departments. Next thing is he disappears. So you say, well, that's the end of him. Forty years he vanishes. And one day, lo and behold, this boy comes back. And who's going to get into Pharaoh's court and get any credence in Pharaoh's presence? It won't be one of the slaves who's moaning and groaning under the heat of the day and making those bricks who are the lowest on the society rung of the ladder. No, it won't be that. It'll be this boy who is one of God's children. Yes, he's one of the seed of the women. You see the plurality aspect of it. It'll be this very one whom God has already prepared and he's got access into the presence of Pharaoh. And it's Moses who's going to be the man of God. And God will one day lead his people out. He will bring them out with a mighty triumph and a mighty victory. They'll spoil the Egyptians. They'll take their gold. They'll take their food with them. And they'll get so far and Pharaoh go, Oh no, the devil just woke me up this morning and told me, Look what you stupid man, look what you've done. You've lost all your slaves and the nation's got to go away and prosper. Pursues after them with his mighty army, the mightiest army in that ancient world. And what's he going to do? He's going to destroy them. And he sees them and the water parted for them. And they went through, safe through the waters. Pharaoh and his army says, Here we go, boys, charge! Right? What happened that night? Oh, God said, oh, I think we'll just change the wind. <laughs> and it blew to t'other way. That's what happened. And the waters came back. And the horse and his rider, he threw it into the sea. God is still on the throne. Let us remember it. Satan there, he's contained. Yes, sorry, Satan. You may be attacking and you're never stopping. And you think you're nearly succeeding. But God will always be intervening. He is in control. He's on the throne. And Satan, you're under his control. And you are restrained according to the workings of the counsels of his own will. Where do you go then after you come to Moses? Well, you go to Joshua. See, we're tracing the theme through. And then you go to Judges. Oh, things are bad. Things are bad if you read the book of Judges. By the time you get to the end of the Judges, it's horrific. The nation is corrupt and corrupted with leaders that are, well, they just go from bad to worse. Oh, you say, but they had Samson. Sure, he was blind and he was in prison and he was powerless. And all he could do was one act, as it were, God could use him once in bringing down the temple, but it was an act of death. It's quite terrible, that story of the judges. And then it starts again. Satan gets into the Israelites and he starts to get them to think, you know. And then finally they come to Samuel, that godly man, and he, they say, excuse us, we want a king. Now follow this through. It, fits. it demonstrates exactly what I'm saying. God in control and using evil for his own purposes of good. They say, we want a king. Do you know why they wanted a king? They had a king. It was God. The kingship of God reigning amongst his people. But they said, no, 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 no. We want one to be like the nations of the rest of the world. Right? That's what we want. We want a king that, um, of our own choosing. In other words, we actually uh, don't mind if we lose our distinctiveness as God's people under God's theocracy. 
we would far rather be like those around us and lose our distinctiveness and have a king of our own choosing who's going to rule over us. And Samuel was so upset and God says to him, Samuel, you just do what you said and don't you be up what they said and don't you be so upset because they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They are rejecting me. All right? Now, this was years ago. This was thousands of years ago, but there's nothing different, you know. We've grown up in the last decade in a church, in the church, the professing church, the ecclesiastical world that has told us the best way to witness is to make sure you let the world know, the ungodly know, that we're really not a threat. That actually we're quite like them. You know, we can get on well together. No, we don't hate sin. No, we don't speak against sin. No, we don't talk about the coming judgment of God. We're not too confronting. We don't upset people. We get on, you see. They've watered down the idea of being a distinctiveness between God's people and the devil's children. And the difference is as strong as the difference between darkness and light and evil and holiness. That's the difference. And we're not of the world. But however, just a lesson in passing. And he says, they've not rejected you, God says, they have actually rejected me. Now, this, is, this links very much with our theme this morning. When uh, Rob was reading about the promises of God to David, I thought this, is, this slots in so beautifully with the whole picture that we've got for the message this morning. Because God takes that rebellious act, because that's what it was, wasn't it? A rebellious act, a rejection of God. He takes that act and he uses it to raise up a king of his choice, King David, who establishes the very dynasty from which would come the Christ. Read Matthew 1, it's beautiful. The book of the generations of Jesus Christ, son of David. They wanted a king of their choice. That's what they wanted. God steps in, and he brings in a David of his choice. And he gives all the promises of the throne to David, the man of God's choice. And he tells him that there wouldn't fail one of his seed to sit upon the throne. And the promises of God in sovereignty, in supremacy, in triumph and in rule, and in the destroying of all that is evil and sets itself against God. He placed it into the hand of David's seed, none less than great David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would come into the world and deal the final blow to Satan and establish a kingdom of which there shall never be an end. And by his infinite grace and mercy, forgive us of our sins and bring us in under the beneficent the glorious, the gracious, the bounteous rule of the King of kings and Lord of lords. And you might want a Saul, says God. I have got a David. You want a man of your choice? I'll put into your scheme of things the king of my choice. And I would use even that evil intention and rebellious act for my own purposes and for my glory. Do you see that Satan is under control? And we're only in the Old Testament before Christ has actually come. 
And what happens from that on is they get their king because they wanted to unify the nation and in no time the whole thing's a shred of a mess, isn't it? I mean, straight after this David, and then we saw the glory of Solomon, what happened after that? They fought. And the nation busted up. And One, the northern kingdom had ten tribes and the southern kingdom had two tribes and the northern kingdom goes into captivity under the Assyrians and they're obliterated. I mean, what's left? This, this is the devil again, see, against God's purposes. This Messiah is not going to come. These people are not going to survive. The seed of the woman who hate me, well, I'm going to have hatred against them. <clears throat> You're left with two tribes, and they're in such a mess themselves. They get carried down into Babylon, and they too are in captivity. The nation of Israel drifts further and further away from God. The nation of Israel becomes more and more absorbed in and surrounded by the people that, that they marry into and get muddled up with. And then what's the outcome of all of this? Well, the outcome of all of this, as the nation drifts further and further from God, and as the Assyrians destroy the bigger part, and as the Babylonians captivate the smaller part, what you have is the people losing their distinction and the power of their witness becoming less and less and less and less and less. But, but there was a teenager in the captivity of Babylon and his name was Daniel. Daniel, the man of God. Daniel, the man who saw the visions of God. Daniel, the man that prayed to his God. Daniel, the man that invoked God to send his messengers, the angels, right, to answer his prayers and to reveal to him the glorious coming into the world of the, through the ancient of days, the Son of Man who would receive a kingdom that would never be shaken. Imagine a man can pray like that. Yes, the angels came to answer his prayer, but... Uh, you know, the devil's angels met the angels coming to answer Daniel's prayer, met them and held them up for three solid weeks, it says. Gabriel came and helped us, says the angel, and we broke through. And the man of God, he sees the visions of God and he gets the promises of God. And he's telling them God is still on the throne. The ancient of days he rules and he will give his kingdom over into the hands of the one who is the son of man. Can you not see God's program for blessing and redemption? Can you not see his program for Satan and his containment and his control? Can you not grasp this morning, God is still on the throne? We could go on and on and on. I won't take you much further, but I will take you to the book of Esther. You know why? The book of Esther comes after the captivity. The book of, gee, why is the book of Esther in the Bible? Come on, why is it there? Think it through. Have you ever thought, why is it there? I mean, it's, lots of people don't really know don't think it's worth much because did you know in the book of Esther you never get the name of God mentioned? Never! I mean, what's the use of a book in the Bible that never mentions the, the name of God? Probably it was put in there wrongly, do you think? No, it wasn't. <laughs> it was put in there to demonstrate exactly what we're saying. The people were in such a terrible state that there's not even a mention of God in writing about them. But after their captivity, someone rises up. Haman is a man, he's an evil man. And he's going to destroy what he's got left under his power and he's going to wipe out the Jews, completely exterminate them. That's his plan. And there's another man there, Mordecai. <clears throat> he's a Mr. Nobody. There's an incredible woman there. You remember there was a Daniel, don't you? And there was a Moses and there was a Noah. There was an incredible woman, Esther, the queen, who had such natural beauty that God used that to get her into the house of the king and through her, 
incredible courage, because, I mean, she was committing suicide. That's what she was doing. Just like, um, really, in the book of Daniel, Daniel was committing suicide to do what he did. All right? He did. He ended up in the lion's den anyway. <laughs> She's committing suicide on that day that she went into the king. But God gave her favor, you see. See the seed of the woman coming out again? Do you see how God works? And that plan that Mordecai had for the extermination of the Jews, I should say Haman had for the extermination of the Jews, he himself was hanged on the gallows. And the decree to destroy the Jews was just reversed like that. And the book is there to show you how God fulfills his promises and his purposes and he works all things after the counsel of his own will, even when the nation is in such a dreadful and horrible state of things, and there's still the seed of the woman, and they hate sin, and they love God, and they seek the pathway of righteousness. And after Esther, you could go through, and there seems to be things getting worse and worse, and what happens? There's that terrible, long, 400-and-something years of silence. When the voice of God is not heard in Israel, there's no prophet, there's no voice, there's no vision, there's nothing going on, it would seem. And you say, well, it's only a matter of time. Satan would have have won. And you turn into the New Testament, and what does it say? It says this, it says, there was a man. His name was Joseph, and he was a just man. See that? He feared God. You see that? Do you know there was a girl? 16-year-old girl. I mean, it was a, a Daniel was probably about 16 years of age. But here's this girl. And she's a young girl, pure girl. That's the way to keep yourself girls. Be sure of that. Men too, don't get me wrong. But God used that pure girl. And she calls herself the handmaid of the Lord. Ooh, this is the plurality of the seed of the woman. You can see this host- the enmity, the hostility, can't you? She's the handmaid of the Lord. And meanwhile, you know... There's, there's those wise men in the East and they've been looking for those, that star to come, to show, to tell them of the coming promised seed of the woman of the king that would be born. And then there's all these angels and they're just waiting there in the wings, as it were, just hiding in the clouds. They're waiting to sing out glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace, goodwill towards men. They want to declare the Saviour's birth. And there in the temple with all its mess, for a mess it was in the ordinances that went on there. There was an old man, he's called Simeon, a lovely old priest. It says he was just, and he was devout. And he was ready just to take up a babe in his arms, because he was waiting to see God's salvation. And if that's not enough there, every day there's this old lady, and she comes into the temple. Indeed, she never seems to go home. And she, with prayers and fastings day and night, she speaks to all who are awaiting redemption in Israel, to the seed of the woman, if you like, and the plurality of it, to the minority by far, absolutely true, even amongst God's people. But nonetheless, the people of God, the hand of God, the work of God, the program of God, and the will of God, and the protection of God. Satan you can do your worst. These are all waiting. They are all appointed of God. And they are waiting to give thanks and to speak to him, of him, to all who look for in Israel. Satan's done his worst. God has triumphed. The Christ child, the Redeemer, the Messiah, the divine deliverer has come into the world. And the satanic and God's program against Satan's force. Satan's power, 
Satan's evil. It's entered the next phase, which we'll see in the next session. It's entering now the next phase. He's not, as it were, back in heaven on the throne, controlling and guarding and guiding and moving. He's coming right in total warfare into the enemy camp, into the darkness of this world of sin into a world that's in the hands of the evil one. He's going to face the powers of darkness. He's going to close in on the enemy. He's going to break his power. A glorious story of the perfect, pure life of the Lord Jesus and his total victory over sin in his life and over Satan in his life and over the power of Satan and death in his, and, and death in his death and in his glorious resurrection and in the fact that now he sits upon the throne. Go home and think about it. God's in control. God is still on the throne. He will remember his own. Though trials may press us and burdens distress us, he will never leave us alone. God is still on the throne. He never forsakes his own. His promise is true. And he'll not forget you. Because God is still on the throne. Let's go away blessed with a vision of a risen, triumphant, exalted Christ on the throne. And let's keep Satan, be wise, but keep Satan and an understanding of his power where it should be. Have a correct assessment of it and give thanks that we're all in God's hands. Amen. Lord, we give thanks this morning for lifting our hearts above. We are so grateful for the truths of thy precious, precious word. Lord, please help us to understand it better. Give us hearts to search out the meaning of its truths. Help us to find him who is the secret of its pages. These are they which testify of me. Father, give us hearts for it, appetites for it, and something of the glorious revelation of himself. We think of those two on the way to Emmaus, downcast and sad, as they thought their hopes had been destroyed and Satan had triumphed. But he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Lord, we just think of that. We'd love to have been and heard that discussion as the master, the redeemer, the promised seed of the woman actually went through those Old Testament scriptures we've read this morning and the glory of the Lord surely shone round about them. Lord, warm our hearts, we pray. Bless us as we separate. Help us in our circumstances, in our home. Preserve us in our battles against sin and Satan and grant us the grace needed for every day is our humble prayer and may we Find it to be true, for that promise to supply it never, never fails. And our God, we lift our hearts in blessing and in thanksgiving that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit might be our blessed portion as we move onward in the enemy's land, but looking above and giving thanks in his worthy and precious name. Amen.